Hey there, and welcome to the United Church Podcast. We are a new church here in Seattle committed to an ethic of love. We are striving to be a people united, united with Jesus, each other, ourselves, and the world around us. We hope you enjoyed this week's homily. wanted to tell you guys, I'm super grateful. I'm super grateful for you. I'm super grateful for your trust in, in me, in Trevor, in us as a community and as a people. I'm just super grateful for that. And I'm excited for what the future may hold for us as a church. We're only seven months old. It never ceases to amaze me that that's how new we are as a community. Because there's things about us that are super, uh, like, like, super old. Right? Like, I think we have an, a, a bit of an old soul about us as a church. And yet, at the same time, I think we also have, have a sense of newness and a sense of freshness as new life begins to birth within us. And so, I say all that to say, I, I think we've got some really cool stories and some really cool chapters ahead of us as a church. So, as we jump into our new series that we're starting today, it's called The Art of Giving. And I wanted to take a moment to just pray real quick as we step into this. This will be a three-week series where we're really going to be talking about what it means to be a generous church, about how we can utilize the things that God has gifted us with to do more good in the world around us. So we're going to spend three weeks kind of processing through what the art of giving and the art of generosity looks like for us as a church. So let's take a moment and pray just to kind of settle our hearts, settle ourselves, and to think through what it is that God is God has for us father we thank you for the day that we have to gather together for the extra hour of sleep maybe and father we thank you for the gifts that you give the life that you give the joy that you give the love that you give and that father may we be a people that turn that around and spread it throughout our neighborhood spread it throughout our city in such a way that people can't help but notice that you are at work that you are doing good things because of the generous spirit that is at work within us because of you and your son may you guide us the course of these next few weeks as we look at what generosity and giving looks like for us as a church and for us as a people. And may we be changed and challenged and pushed in new ways that uh, we may never have considered before. So Father, it is in your son's name that we pray all of these things. Amen. Have you ever seen this machine? <laughs> have you ever seen these things? I think they're hysterical, right? There are so many amazing YouTube videos out there. I couldn't choose just one, so I just stuck with a, a picture of it. But it's the cash grabber, right? You step inside this like vacuum-sealed tube that then pushes air from the floor, and all of these dollar bills start to fly and swirl around you. The best part is when people have those gigantic goggles on their head. I even saw a couple of videos with people that had to walk in with helmets because the dollar bills are going to hurt their head? It's going to cause a head wound? I don't know. But the whole goal of being inside the cash grabber machine is, you see, there's a little clock up at the top. You usually have like a minute or 30 seconds, depending on how generous the company that's running this thing is, or the giveaway might be. You have like 30 seconds to a minute to grab as many dollar bills as possible. My favorite, perhaps, 
was there was a grandma, an older lady that had stepped in, and she just stood there, like pushing on the glass in front of her, just doing this. And you're like, uh, okay, like I don't know what you're doing. But like it was like virtually little movement the entire time. She walked away with $250. <laughs> Right? She had somehow figured out how to just trap them up against the wall doing this as they would slide up. And I don't know how it was working, but she walked away with $250 and like stepped out and was like, what's the big deal? And everybody else was like, what? Because then you have the people that are super spastic. Right? They're just like flinging arms everywhere, just reaching at anything they can get their hands on. They're all over the place inside of this tube. And it's really funny when you see the people that just keep hitting the wall and being like, ow, oh, because they're, they're so focused on the money, they don't see the barrier, the invisible barrier that surrounds them in this space. And they find themselves walking away a little hurt and a little pain in pain. Earlier this summer, Elliot was a birthday party at Chuck E. Cheese over in Bellevue. It was one of her classmates from school. And the girls, a couple of the girls, got to walk inside of a tube, much like the cash grabber, to grab tickets. The tickets that you win from like, you know, skee-ball or from like the, the water shoot game or you're trying to get it into the targets. It was all about grabbing as many tickets as possible in 30 seconds so that then you could go buy the best like toy and gum and candy and all that stuff at the Chuck E. Cheese counter, right? You know what I'm talking about? All the, the trinkets that parents are like, what on earth is this? Why do you want that so bad? And so there are the, these, the girls are kind of standing on the outside and the, the, like the helper, the worker that's there says to him, says, so probably one of the best ways to do it is to use your shirt. Use your shirt and just kind of kind of collect it as much as possible. Like, use your shirt. There was one girl that, as it was going up, just stood there with her shirt out like this. And all of the tickets were, like, going up inside of her shirt. So she was using her shirt as, like, a, like a I don't know, like a parachute catcher. I don't know, like a, a <laughs> butterfly catcher, maybe. She's just, oh, like this. But then there was another girl that was, like, pulling her dress way up over your head. You're like, this is inappropriate. This should not be happening. These girls are in first grade. This is not good. And the parents are like, put your dress down. Put your dress. And she's like, oh, right? It's so amazing how much we focus on the money that is right in front of us. That thing that is going to buy the thing that will make us happy. The, the Powerball has been all the rage lately because it had shot to like record levels and people were buying Powerball tickets left and right thinking that it was going to be the thing that was going to change their life. Now granted, it would change your life if you won like, what was it, like $1.2 billion in a Powerball. That would certainly change your life. But the question is, would it really solve all your problems? It would solve some problems, that's for sure. But would it solve all of your problems? I think that what these sorts of ideas convey to us is that we, this is, I'm making a hard turn here, I think we worship at the feet of mammon. 
We worship at the feet of money. We sit beneath it and look up at it. We try and grab it with everything that we can. We try and believe that it is then going to be the thing that changes our life, that it is going to turn us around left and right. We worship at the feet of mammon. One of the really interesting things that came out earlier this week was the jobs report, right? The, the jobs report came out, and I guess we, we added as a country 250,000, 350,000 jobs over the course of October. Like, it, was, it was a really good jobs report. It was a really good thing, and that the unemployment level stayed right about the same. And all of a sudden, you hear the politicians begin to say, oh, well, it doesn't matter anymore what our president is saying, the terrible things that he's talking about, the evil and the horrible things that he's doing, the fact that he might be a white nationalist, at least a nationalist in his own words, those sorts of things, that no longer matters because our jobs report is great. The money is flowing. Who cares about anything else? It's all good. We worship at the feet of mammon. Now, it's one of the most difficult things, uncomfortable topics to talk about, especially in church, this idea of money. And I've sat through a lot of messages and a lot of topics, a lot of talks about money, especially in church. And sometimes they felt a lot like timeshare ploys, right? Have you ever sat through one of those? They, they feel like a timeshare ploy. All the good you're saying, but you really, they just feel like empty words. And all you're trying to do is get my money. The end goal is not to get me to be able to relax on some sunny beach or for me to make a commission out of all these things. It's not a timeshare ploy. And yet, sadly, the church has just done this way too often. Discussions on money are often masked as these disciple-making sorts of messages when they were, in fact, nothing but commission-based. There was a, a job ad for a church uh, that started making its way around the internet earlier this year. Uh, my friend Dustin down in Portland posted it. He said, this can't be real, right? And I, I looked into it and I was like, oh, that's actually real. The, the job posting was for a, a senior pastor of a, a decent-sized church somewhere in Colorado where it was like, we'll pay you a base salary of like $30,000, somewhere in Colorado, like a base salary of $30,000, but then you'll get 90% of the offerings that come in. What? <laughs> right? Like, that just feels weird. But it was a real advertisement. It was a real job posting. And people were like, no, 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 no. This is not about that. Our conversation today, our conversation over the course of the next three weeks, the art of giving, is not about that. Our goal in this series is to take a look about at how we use money, how it is used in light of how the Bible tells us it should be spent. And let me say here in the beginning that money is not a bad thing. Money, in fact, is actually neutral. It's our response to money that causes problems. And the awkwardness of this conversation is actually really worth the time. Jesus brought up money all the time. He actually talked about money more than heaven and hell combined. Jesus talked about money more than heaven and hell combined. He talked about money even more than faith and prayer combined. More than faith and prayer combined. In fact, one in every seven verses in the book of Luke is about money. 
And 11 out of the 39 parables have this theme of money running through them. There's a deep-seated connect between our humanity and money, which is why Jesus keeps coming back to it over and over and over again. Jesus understands the components of money and worship and how they intersect in our lives. Just the fact that money can be an offensive conversation shows that there is a lot to it. The fact that we get really uncomfortable around it, it shows that Jesus is hitting on a nerve, hitting on something that's really important and something for us to really sit back and pay attention to. And for as often as we talk about important things of faith, we too as a church need to come back to this theme about money over and over again. So what is the big deal with money? Tim Keller is an author and a pastor in Manhattan. Actually, he just retired from being a pastor, and now he's just a super prolific author. Dude, I feel like dude puts out a book every month. That's, that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but not much. I mean, the, the amount of writing that this man does, and he's absolutely brilliant. But in his book called Counterfeit Gods, most people recognize the danger of pursuing money over all else. And in fact, I think most people realize that money can become a modern-day idol. But as Keller says, money is really just a surface issue. He says some people want lots of money as a way to control their world and life. Such people usually don't spend much money and live very modestly. They keep it all safely saved and invested so they can feel completely secure in the world. Others want money for access to social circles and to make themselves beautiful and attractive. These people do spend money on themselves in lavish ways. Other people want money because it gives them so much power over others. Money, money is used as a tool. Money is something that we can idolize, that we look up to, that we hold in front of us as this grand end-all, be-all that will then give us beauty, will give us success, will give us power, will give us influence. This is why we look to it. This is why we worship at the feet of mammon. The oft-quoted verse on this topic is 1 Timothy 6.10. For money is the root of all kinds of evil. No. It doesn't say that at all. In fact, that's one of the things that people believe that is in the Bible is that, that money is the root of all evil. But 1 Timothy says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. The love of money, placing money at the center as the object of our worship is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Griefs. So money is not the issue. It is the love of money. It is the worship of money. It is the setting it as the goal in front of us. Or rather, the things that money can provide, the status, the power, the security. Now, I don't want this to feel like an attack. I don't want this to feel like an attack on money or on, on people because the church has failed at this as much as anyone. The church has misused money, capital C Church has misused money in epic ways. There was a study uh, that was done just a few years ago talking about how the church uses money. That if the church together, collectively, worldwide, 
used its money together in one goal, it could eradicate extreme poverty in one fell swoop. That all of the money that is necessary to eradicate extreme poverty, the billions of dollars, I, th I think the, the UN Millennial Fund said it'd be $30 billion, that the church could wipe that out in less than a year's worth of giving. The universal church. The church has not used its money well as a collective entity. And I've seen churches start capital campaigns to build bigger buildings for the recognition of their pastors. They've put plaques up in stone on the outside with the, with the pastor's name on it, allowing generations to remember them as the one who was able to build such grand and beautiful and amazing structures. Now, let me, let me say this. I don't think that church buildings are wrong. We meet in one, <laughs> a rather nice one, a good one at that. I'm not saying that church buildings are wrong. They can be really good tools for reaching a community that might be far from God, but it's the motivation that can be the root of evil. The same story is being told in the lives of each person that attends these churches as well. There's a constant undercurrent, a constant undercurrent attempting to convince us that we need more money and more things, that if we build it bigger and better, if we have brighter lights and larger sound, if we have all of these things, then, then we'll be happy. Things, this is played out daily through commercials, billboards, and even through our relationships. I love this image that, that Banksy painted on a wall. It's an image of, uh, of a man with a heart up and the money sign down, kind of showing the tension and the relationship that we live in as a people, that we have this separation within us of which one will we choose? Will we choose love of others? Will we choose love as a people or will we choose money as the end result, as the goal of who we are? Because there's a great tension that takes place in both that you cannot have one alone. There's a snapshot in how money affects us as a people. Did you know that the average American has almost $15,000 in credit card debt? Half of college undergraduates have four or more credit cards. Undergraduates. Four or more college, or four more credit cards, and leave college with an average of over $4,000 in credit card debt. The second highest bankruptcy rate is 25 to 34-year-olds, and the first highest, 35 to 44-year-olds. Basically, that 25 to 44, everyone in this room. Pastor and author Nelson Searcy writes in his book, The Generosity Ladder, about red flags that might be going up in our lives when it comes to handling money and how we handle our money. One of those red flags is your debt is growing each month. If you see your debt growing, whether it's credit card debt, student loan debt, card debt, uh, car debt, whatever it is, it's going up every single month. That's a red flag in how we handle money. You're only making the minimum monthly payments to your creditors. Not just credit cards, but mortgage payment, a house or a car payment, all of those things. Everything is just the minimum, the minimum possible. If you miss one paycheck, you can't cover your rent or your bills. You and your spouse fight about money regularly. In fact, money conversations, uh, money fights and arguments in marriages is one of the top reasons for divorce in our country. Money. It's money and sex. Those are the 
two reasons why people get divorced. You're not able to put money into savings for retirement. You're constantly stressed about money. Because of your financial situation, you feel like you can't live the life that you were created to live. You've got this wall or this barrier that is being erected in front of us. And many of us feel the pressure. In fact, I'd be surprised if there were people here completely detached from the stress of money. We live in one of the more expensive cities in this country. Uh, housing, it costs, uh, it's supposed to be 33% of your income, right? 33% of your income should be going towards housing. But in Seattle, it's typically upwards of 50 to 60%. We live in one of the more expensive cities in the country. And I'd be surprised if someone here was detached completely from that stress. This feels like a conversation apart from our faith. That money and faith are two totally separate issues, that we can push them away from each other. However, our imprisonment to money can become one of the greatest obstacles to our faith. If you're ever wondering where to read in the Bible for inspiration on how to live, look no further than the Sermon on the Mount. It is probably the epitome. It's like, it's like the great tome of what it should mean for a Christian to live. There's a section in Matthew chapter 6 that embraces what it means to live as God intends. It is full of talk on money, but it's highlighted best in Matthew 6.24. No one can serve two masters. Think of the Banksy image. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot serve both God and mammon. Matthew tells us, in the words of Jesus, that we cannot serve two masters. It seems like there are many masters that we could serve, but Jesus only gives us two, God and money. Money is the central concern due to what it offers us. And Jesus doesn't hold back on this fact at all. He says the options are to love one and despise the other. Those are our only two options. But we, as a people, have a different story to write. Now, our stewardship, the way in, we, the way in which we use our money, our stewardship of our money and possessions become the story of our lives. Our stewardship of our money and our possessions become the story of our lives. Now, this word stewardship is talking about our ability to manage or supervise, in this case, money. How we manage or supervise our money. I wonder what our life stories would say. What are our stories? What is the way in which we're using our money? How is that telling the story? of our life. Would they tell stories of loving God or of loving money? Jesus further explains it this way in Luke 12, 34, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The difficulty that we often have in professing one thing while living as though something else is true, the acceptance of money in our lives has effectively replaced God. Our worth, our value, and even safety have found a more trusting home in money than in God. 
And because of that, this really becomes a lordship issue and can be reduced down to one word, trust. Where does our trust lie? Jesus tells this parable in Luke 12 that helps us understand. He says, The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant crop. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain, and I'll say to myself, You have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat. Drink. Be merry. It's one of the greatest lines. Ah, that's all I gotta do. Eat, drink, and be merry. I will store up so much that that's all I'll have time to do. Eat, drink, and be merry. The most remarkable thing about that passage is the obvious self-focusedness this man had. He wanted to build bigger barns to store up his crops. He wanted to use his resources for personal comfort. Because of this, all of his things were tied up in this new venture. In other words, in other words, this man had put his trust in things so that he could retire by 40 or 50. So he could take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. And so how did God respond to this man that had that as the central focus of his life? Jesus continues with a parable, but God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be for whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. This brings us face to face with the sobering truth of money's effect on us. All along, all along we've been thinking that it is our decision where money goes, that we get to choose where money goes. How we choose to spend it is our business. But Jesus, through this parable, is reminding us that everything is his, and he has simply entrusted it to us. Psalm 24.1 puts it this way. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Everything is God's. Everything. He has just given it to us to steward. And if we choose poorly, God will then redistribute that wealth how he sees fit. I've heard, I've heard these stories. In fact, it was the premise of a Seinfeld episode, which is, you know, makes it true and even more funny. I've heard people buying stars for another person. Have you heard this? Like, people go out and buy stars for another person. You sell, it's, one time I heard of a guy who bought one for his girlfriend and even named it after her. And some might think, oh, that's so romantic. All right. They give you like this fancy certificate that you can proudly display for your friends and family. My boyfriend bought me this star. Right? Just seems kind of like cheesy, chintzy, weird, but 
This is actually one of the most brilliant businesses that I have ever heard of. You want to talk about like scams and like Ponzi scheme kinds of things. This is it. You sell something you don't own to multiple people with no overhead cost except for fancy, brilliant paper. These people, together with the Chia Pet people, might be the greatest entrepreneurs in the history of the world. But the Chia Pet people have to at least produce something, right? You just pick a star and be like, that one. Here you go. Here's your fancy paper. That is now your star for such and such person. Now, the obvious issue is who has claim on the stars? And how is it legal to even sell something that isn't yours? I don't get it. It seems ridiculous to own a star, but there are many things that we do own or will own in our lifetime. Shane Claiborne, in his book, The Irresistible Revolution, talked about a time when he was in Calcutta, India, working with Mother Teresa. He worked with her in the poorest of neighborhoods, where people literally had nothing. And one day, he gave a child some ice cream. We can't fathom how big of a moment this must have been for this child. Someone who likely did not have the basic necessities was now the owner of a luxury item. This was, in all likelihood, the only time this child would taste such flavors. He should have run so he could experience all that this cone had to offer. Right? But Shane recalls a different story. He said that the, church, that the child first ran back to his friends and family and offered them some. Instead of this kid running away with his ice cream cone all for himself, he ran back to his friends and family and said, you got to have some of this. you got to have some of this. He recognized that he had been given a gift, and the gift was best understood by allowing others to enjoy it with him. Allowing other people to enjoy such an extravagant gift with him. People in the developing world who only own enough scraps of wood and cardboard to sleep under tend to see things differently. It's all a mindset. God does not give us things to have. He gives us things to take care of so that we can take care of not only ourselves but others around us. The, the expectation is that we don't just make our lives better, that we make the lives of other people around us better. This becomes a whole lifestyle and a culture shift for us as a country and a people that worship under the feet of mammon. No longer do we plan what we can buy when we get a promotion. No longer do we have to worry about acquiring the newest gadget that just came out. No longer do we have to feel the constant pressure that the world puts on us to put on these bigger and better airs. Sometimes, sometimes conversations about God and money feel like God is angry with us. At this moment, some of us might be sitting here thinking like, Gosh, like, I just feel shame, or I feel guilt, or I feel this anger of God being laid upon my shoulders, pushing me down. But the reality is, he is wanting to free us up from this prison of spending and stuff. 
He is relieving us from the world's expectation that we're not meant to be consumers. We are not meant to be people that consume everything that is around us. No longer does our money go to an item that can only bring moments of happiness. Instead, instead we have the opportunities to bring life to a child that is dying due to unclean drinking water. We have the opportunity to give young women hope that they can live a life absent from prostitution. That we can provide hope through church plants around the world that also bring a sense of hope and love and, of course, the opportunity to help unite people with Jesus, to change the world that they inhabit in Seattle through this community. This is not about what God wants from us. This is not about God taking from us what it is that we have or what it is that we believe that we have earned. This is about what God wants for us. It's not about what God wants from us. It's about what God wants for us. And of course, this comes back again to trust. For many of us, giving doesn't feel like an option. We've already looked at the American credit card debt and indebted to cars, homes, schools, even lifestyles. And this idea of playing, or this idea of giving doesn't seem like an option when we're struggling to make the minimum payments that seem so easy at first, but now feel more oppressive as more of them pile up. So where do we go from here? 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 through 19 says, God commands those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of a life that is truly life. A pastor once demonstrated this trust thing we have with money during one of his church gatherings. He wadded up two $1 bills and threw them into the crowd. Nobody budged. And just kind of watched the dollar bills fall to the ground. Seems like a big fail, right? That you're like, hey, I'm going to give you money. Woo, two bucks. If you're like, yay. Nobody budged. Nobody moved. And he went on to explain that half the world lives on $2 a day or less. We are rich as a people. But that's the, not the point of this passage that Paul is telling Timothy. Paul was telling Timothy that wealth is unstable. Money is unstable. It brings great joy to some, but it also brings great heartache. And instead of putting our trust in that, we should put our trust in a God who provides with everything. He continues by telling us to be generous, which brings true life. That generosity is what helps us to live the life that God wants for us. A lack of generosity doesn't allow us to truly live. And underneath all of our debt and financial strain, we are missing out on life. We don't give because we feel like we can't, which prevents life. Giving is an invitation for us to step into the way that God is doing things in this world. 
And I know this seems counterintuitive. I know this seems like this, this paradox that like just butts up against itself. Sure, being generous brings life, but I don't have enough money to give regardless of what it brings. This all goes back to trusting God, to trusting God instead of ourselves. We already saw that God owns everything, but we choose to trust in things and in money and what they can provide instead of what God can provide. And now to get out of that mess, we are again going to trust ourselves this guy, this own person who got us into that mess in the first place. And that certainly doesn't seem wise either. So this series that we're beginning, it's called The Art of Giving because it's an art form. It's an art in how we trust God. And it's about writing a new story. It's about writing a new story for our life through generosity. And some of you are engaged and participating in na no na Rimo, the National Novel, New Novel Writing Month, or, uh, yeah, that thing. Some of you are engaged in that. You're writing these beautiful stories. But now we have a different way of doing that with our lives as well. We get to pour out these stories on the pages in front of us. But for the rest of us, for all of us, we get to write a new story. We get to craft a new story, a new story that we didn't believe that was once possible. But like any process, it starts first, it starts with the first step. And the first step is to give back. It's to return an initial gift to God in a way that is identifiable and accountable. This step is about proclaiming that our trust is not found in the size of our bank account, but instead in God. And why is it important? Why is this an important first step to give in a way that's identifiable and accountable? And now I understand that some of us think that giving needs to be anonymous. And while there are times where giving should be done anonymously, I think oftentimes we don't really want to know how much we give or how little we give. We're afraid that it won't match the amounts of faith we're trying to live the rest of our lives with. You know, I, I think it's a, a matter of shame that sits in the, the core of our being. Shame in the size, no matter how small it might be. By giving something that's identifiable, what you're saying is I want to grow in my faith and I want to begin to place more of my trust in God rather than money. Now, when someone gives in an identifiable way, we can not only thank you and give it to you in a year-end giving statement for our tax purposes, but it helps us as a community immensely. We can, we can budget, we can track giving patterns, and we can be more responsible with the, with the finances that God is giving us as a community, as, as a church. Now, this first level of giving might seem like a financial change, but honestly, it's a really spiritual change. It's when I step over the line and I say, I want my relationship with money, my God, and my church to be different than it has been before. And that's why on the 18th, in two weeks, we're going to have an annual financial meeting after church to, to show you what it looks like, how we utilize, how we give, how we collect, how we're accountable to the money that comes in to this church. We want to be really authentic and transparent with those finances. We want to be responsible, and we want our community to know together what that looks like and where that is all going. And so right after our services on the 18th, we're going to have that, that, that meeting to kind of lay out an annual report, so to speak. 
pastor and author John Ortberg has a great closing perspective on what happens when he gives. He says, Each dollar I give away is no longer available for my protection, but my sense of freedom always increases when I give because giving is a declaration that my security rests someplace other than the bank. Giving is an act of confidence in God. I love that. Giving is an act of confidence in God. And one last thing. I want to encourage you to begin giving today in a way that's identifiable and accountable. Now, if you're not already doing this, now is your time. And we've set up a special page for this series called UnitedChurch.Gives. If you want to go ahead and take out your phone and go to that location. We don't do offering as a church. We don't, we don't collect an offering as a church, like passing the baskets and the buckets. We do everything online one way, one, for three reasons. One, it's accountability is there. Like we have... Uh, no one ever touches the money. It just goes straight into the bank, which is great. So there's accountability there right away. But it also makes us as a people accountable to what it is that we're doing. And accountability is twofold. It's accountability for us as a church, as an organization. It's also accountability for us as people, as individuals. But then it's also identifiable. It helps with that accountability process. It helps us to step out in faith. And that's the first, that's why this step is so important, that we don't stay in the same spot, but that we get to step into a new story that we're writing together as a people, a story that shows that this God is who we trust more than mammon, that we trust God over money. And next week, we're going to talk about this next step in what the art of giving looks like. The first step is just begin giving. Even if it's a dollar, it doesn't matter. The amount doesn't matter. It's about the act of faith, of stepping into this new trust with this God and saying, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to start working my finances more in alignment with how God wants me to work my finances. If it's a dollar, if it's 50 cents, there's all sorts of different denominations that you can do on that app. It could be a penny. I'm not kidding. It's the act of giving. That's what matters. That is where we begin to put our heart in alignment with the God who is generous beyond everything that we could ever hope or imagine. And so next week, we'll talk a little bit more about what that second step of giving looks like. So let's take a moment and pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for these acts of faith these acts of change and these acts of giving that are beginning to well up and, and begin to take place. Father, we know that you are doing great things in this community, in this church family. And so, Father, this morning we pray that as we step into this act of faith, into this step of, 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 of spiritual formation, we know that this is not something that you want from us, but this is something that you want for us. So, Father, this morning, Continue to soften our hearts, open our eyes and our minds and our ears to what it is that you want us to do and where it is that you would have us go. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's homily. If you're in Seattle, we'd love for you to join us on Sundays at noon at 1316 3rd Avenue West in Queen Anne. 
If you'd like to support our efforts, please visit unitedchurch.gives to partner with us financially. Be in peace and God bless.